Let's now turn to the book of Jude. The book of Jude is the last small book before the book of Revelation. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, and these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you, without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, make, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, 
be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this short book ends on a note of doxology, giving glory and praise to God, and uh, that is indeed also a fitting note upon which to end the year. And I trust it will also uh, be fitting as a great encouragement to Christians in the midst of uh, the spiritual warfare that uh, we are in. Surrounded by false teachers and wicked people in a wicked world, that certainly was the case of those to whom Jude writes, as is evident by this book. And it's certainly true of the world in which we live. But the God who is praised here is the God who is described in very exhilarating language in our text this this evening. As him who is able, he is able to preserve his people. And he is able to present us as saved sinners in his holy presence. He is God our Savior. And he is supremely worthy of our absolute trust and our worship. And our text really is an expression, it is an exclamation of such trust and, uh, and worship. We hear that in the description of God and the ascription of honor and glory to him. And may God enable us to be so moved with trust and worship by our reflection upon his word tonight. All praise be to God our Savior. That's our theme, and uh, it is presented in a way that truly encourages our trust in God. All praise to him for the reasons that are given there, especially in verse 24. All praise to him for our preservation uh, in danger, first of all. Uh, there is a note of urgency to this letter that Jude wrote. From the very beginning, we read that uh, it's as if uh, Jude uh, changed his his plan and his purpose for writing. He was going to write concerning the common uh, faith, but he found it necessary to write exhorting the people to earnestly contend for the faith. In other words, it was not sufficient to give a general uh, presentation of the faith, but in view of the present circumstances in which they were facing the influence of these creeps who came into the church with their lies and with their lewdness, he exhorts them to contend for the faith, to be aware, to be alert to the spiritual dangers they faced, and to cling to God, who is their keeper. And then there were warnings in this book and reminders, even examples of, of apostasy, of those who turned away from God. People came out of Egypt, and then they were destroyed because of their unbelief. Angels left their place of submission to God, and now they're waiting judgment. And then there is Sodom and Gomorrah, who gave themselves to sexual immorality. And there are people like this. There are people like like Cain and like Balaam. They're in the church. And Jude, in effect, is saying, beware. Be alert to the spiritual hazards that surround you. The comfort of our text this evening involves the 
assumption that indeed uh, Christians are on a narrow path and that path is is difficult and and hazardous. That describes the Christian path that we are on as believers. Imagine yourself walking or perhaps crawling along a high mountain ridge where on either side the slopes uh, descend at a, a, a drastic steepness and uh, the footing is hazardous. And if you were to slip on the slippery rocks, you would go down very likely and you'd keep going down, down. And there are all kinds of hazards along with this slippery, treacherous terrain. There's a, there's a fierce wind blowing and it's getting dark. And you're in a very dangerous situation. Well, in a way, uh, that might serve as a comparison of the Christian walk, as a hazardous walk, as a narrow path, in which there are winds of false teaching that would blow us off course. Or there is opposition that would push us over, that would push us down. Opposition that would tempt us to deny the faith that we profess. And if we don't fall for the lies of the world, that world will hate us. Remember what our Lord Jesus said in his high priestly prayer concerning his disciples. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Even at that stage of the disciples' uh, Christian walk, if you will, and commission, Jesus knew that they were hated by even the world in which they currently lived. They had received the word of God. They'd received it into their minds and into their hearts. It would be on their lips. It would be reflected in their lives. And when that happens, it provokes the hatred of the world. It's not always overt. But what Christians stand for as evident in what they say and how they live creates a reaction. You may be killed for it. I selected Revelation 13, and afterwards I thought, well, that's a rather dark passage uh, to read in connection with the end of a new year, and uh, we're not focusing on that passage. But my reason for for um, selecting this perhaps reflects something of my own impression in the past week in reading this passage and how I was struck with the repeated reference to the fact that the power that would be given to the beast, and I believe the, the beast stands for world powers and their opposition to Christ and his church, which comes to extreme forms on occasion and will come to an extreme form before the Lord Jesus returns. Power is given to the beast to fight against the saints and to overcome them, to kill all those that would not receive the mark. That's the language that we find. We find similar language elsewhere in the book of Revelation with respect to the two witnesses. And again, power was given to the beast to kill them. It's almost like an offhanded remark, a very brief, a very abrupt statement of the apparent success of the enemies of the church to defeat them, to destroy them. And whatever that might mean for us as a congregation or as families or as individuals, It certainly teaches that Christians, simply by virtue of God's protecting care and love for them, are not exempt from death, are not exempt from being killed by the satanic-driven world in its opposition to the Lord and His people. Can you stand up to that? 
Can you stand against the pull of our own sinful inclinations? Can you stand strong as others fall away? As others deny Christ? As others depart from Him? As others leave the faith they once professed and abandon the church in which they once worshipped? To live in this world and to follow its ways? Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't trust in yourself. It takes serious effort to keep the faith. But you, Jude says, in contrast to these mockers, in contrast to these sensual people who simply live for their pleasures, but you, he says, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a description of the kind of Christian effort that is necessary in order to follow the Lord. We need to be built up in the faith. We need to continue in prayer. We need to dwell upon the love of God and be so affected by it that we respond in love and loyalty to this Savior. It takes effort. Some need to be snatched out of the fire. Some need to be terrified with threats and warnings so they don't go on their way merrily to hell. They need to face the seriousness of life, the urgency to our call. Are there few that be saved? Is the way narrow? Is the gate difficult and narrow? Is it hard? Who then can be saved? Remember the disciples' uh, response to Jesus when he spoke of how uh, difficult it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Who then can be saved? Well, Jesus' answer indicates that it's not only difficult, it's not only risky, but very emphatically he makes clear that with man it's impossible. But that which is impossible with man is possible with God. He is able to keep you from stumbling. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think through the power that works in us, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, using similar language, he is able, he is able. We hear that language at the end of uh, the book of Romans in chapter 16. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. In fact, we might wonder, why does it say he is able? Does that cast a shadow of doubt as to whether he will actually do it? Why doesn't it just say he will keep you from stumbling? Isn't that biblical truth? Well, yes, it is biblical truth. But our text not only directs us to the power of God, but it does so in such a way as to call us to exercise faith in the power of God, knowing that we depend upon such power to keep us, knowing that without that power we will not be kept and preserved. And so this language of God's ability indeed is a summons to trust in Him completely, such doxology teaches us to exercise such faith as to exalt in his power, to glory in it. He is able to keep us from falling. 
Therefore, we march forward without fear, with a realistic awareness of the hazards we face, but with confidence in God. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Yes, we wrestle against not flesh and blood, but enemies that are too strong for us, that are fearful, frightful in their power, that we cannot withstand without the armor of God. And so the very language of our text is a summons to trust in Him and then to go forward in confidence and praise. Praise for His power to keep us. Secondly, all praise to Him for our glorious future. He is able to keep you and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. There's three amazing things about this uh, description of God. The first is saved sinners in the presence of God's glory, it says. Now, we might say that to simply speak of the presence of God involves the presence of His glory. But it doesn't simply say that. Because God wants us to be struck with what an amazing thing it is that we should appear in the presence of His glory. The glory is the outshining, the manifestation of His perfections. And whenever God reveals Himself and His glory shines out to creatures of dust, what is the result? Well, look at the instances of Scripture where we have the glory of God appearing to Isaiah or to Daniel or to John on the Isle of Patmos, or even the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ shining out to Peter with a display of his miraculous power, the characteristic response was to fall down on their faces. Whenever God reveals himself, his holiness and majesty overwhelms. But God is able to take us into the full blaze of his glory and to cause us to stand. That's really what's involved in this language, to present, to present you, to cause you to stand. The wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But God's people will be admitted into his holy presence to stand before him. Secondly, saved sinners standing faultless before God. Maybe you've had a difficult year. Maybe you've suffered losses, griefs, ongoing trials. And yes, we cannot face those things without the power and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you were to answer the question, what is the source and the cause of your greatest trouble? What has it been in this past year? I think a spiritual answer and an insightful answer would not simply be the difficult circumstances that that we face but our own faults in the midst of those circumstances. Our unruly desires, our impatience and pride, our discontents and our resentments, our selfishness and unlove for others, our distrust of God, our disobedience to Him. And I've got some bad news for you. Next year is going to be very similar to this one. Why? Because you're a wretched man or woman carrying about a body of death. And until you're delivered from that, 
you're going to be struggling with the reality of your sins and your failings. And at times you might indeed feel that you can relate to Paul when he says, Oh, wretched man, wretched woman, boy or girl that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Well, that's the bad news. But the good news is that change is coming. Change is coming. In Revelation 7, verse 9, John is given a vision of the redeemed church. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And who are they? Well, the answer is given. Verse 14 and 15. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And then it goes on to describe the blessedness of their presence with God, robed in white. Save sinners standing faultless before God not only as those washed from their sins, but glorified and sanctified, such that those sins from which they have been cleansed do not enter into that place where they are anymore, whatsoever. In fact, thirdly, our text speaks of saved sinners there with exceeding joy. Every reason for sadness will be gone, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And in place of any sorrow and heaviness, there will be joy beyond any kind of earthly happiness that's imaginable. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And there will be the endless doxology of the redeemed. That same chapter of uh, Revelation 7 depicts these this great multitude as crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation! to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And in view of the certainty of that ultimate happiness in the presence of God's glory, faultless, with exceeding joy, a joy that exceeds anything we can even imagine, Therefore, we give praise to God. It's grace-driven doxology. It's praise based on the certainty of God's grace. So we can begin this praise now. All praise to him for his matchless glory. He is the only wise God, our Savior, we read in this description of him. Actually, a doxology at the end of the book of Romans uses very similar uh, language. It begins now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. The only wise God, our Savior. You know that these words apply to the Lord Jesus Christ, no less than to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. Christ is our God. And our Savior, in whom the saving wisdom of God is revealed. You see, by this description, indeed, Jude calls our attention to the certainty 
of this preserving power and the certainty of uh, this perfecting power of God so that indeed our grace might be compelled by the confidence that God indeed is not only able, but he indeed is our God and our Savior. And then there are triplets or three pairs of reasons for praise to this God. Praise him for his transcendent honor and greatness. To him be glory and majesty. The glory and the majesty of God is to be confessed. It is to be prayed. It is to be sung. In our call to worship, we continually hear such a summons to this activity, this central activity of the redeemed life, to worship God. One example, Psalm 96, Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. So worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. That's a summons to give glory to God. What does that mean, to give glory to God? Does God lack some glory that you can provide? Well, of course not. He is infinitely glorious. We can't add anything to His glory. I think it's the uh, ASV that, that renders the word give, ascribe. Ascribe to Him honor and glory. I think that's helpful. Because it means that giving glory to God is not adding anything to Him that He lacks. It's to attribute to Him the reality of His greatness. And to consider that as something possessed by Him infinitely, which we delight to acknowledge with awe. Lift up your hearts and ascribe such honor to God. And let your hearts then be lifted up and move with high thoughts of God and warm feelings toward God. Praise Him for His transcendent honor and greatness. Praise His sovereign, absolute authority. To Him be dominion and power. So in this light, we might say the language, He is able, yes, it points to His power, to encourage our faith, but there's a sense in which we might say, this is like an, an understatement. He is able. Nothing can stand in his way. In Revelation chapter 17, there's the account of this coalition of evil. The beasts, the kings that, that, uh, come together to make war with the lamb. And then there's this brief statement. And the lamb will overcome them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings. Oh yeah, the final word is the victory of the Lamb. The church defeated? The saints ultimately destroyed and killed? Unthinkable. The appearance of this, the, the present temporal death, is just the context in which the ultimate defeat of all Christ's enemies will be manifested in a way that magnifies His glory. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, the Lord Jesus said. That's true in terms of the present circumstances. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can separate us from that love. You can read the litany of disasters that we may face. And all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. We need not fear these things. 
and his kingdom is forever. On New Year's Eve, we're aware of the passing of time. Swiftly, with changes, changes that often make everything seem to be uh, transitory, often in kind of a sad way. Change and decay in all around I see. Change and decay, sometimes I feel, sometimes I experience. But God never changes. His truth never changes. And doxology never ends. And so our texts, as it describes glory to God, says, both now and forever, verily, most truly. Amen.